I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading the book of James. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. Who wrote the book of James? Well, James, according to many scholars, may be one of the earliest letters to believers in the New Testament. Even though there were two other men named James who were apostles of Christ, we see that in Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, it's generally agreed by most students of the New Testament that this James is the same one who headed up the church back in Jerusalem, who was also the Lord's brother. He was not one of the apostles. However, the tone of the letter seems in keeping with the role of James played in Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 21 in those Jerusalem councils. The Jewish historian Josephus reports that James was martyred around 62 A.D. If that's the case, then the book of James would have been written prior to that time. In chapter 1, we deal with the concept of testing or trial. Verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind." For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death." The recipients of this letter are declared to be quite widespread in the very first verse when he mentions the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. The phrase scattered abroad comes from a single Greek word, diaspora. That word means the dispersion of Jews throughout the Roman Empire. The definite article is used there, which would indicate that James is speaking of a particular dispersion of Jewish Christians, perhaps the one suggested as Saul, who later became Paul, was on his tirade against believers in Acts chapter 8. That was following the execution of Stephen. Since they are scattered, the twelve tribes, is certainly James' way of indicating that his letter is for all Jewish Christians rather than being formally addressed to the individual tribes themselves. 
James refers to his letter recipients as brethren in verse 2. In what sense does he consider them brethren? Is that by blood, relationship, or through faith? Since James immediately gets to his point in the same sentence that trial and temptation is upon them because of their faith, he is undoubtedly referring to them as brethren based upon their faith in Christ. Why question that? Well, some have suggested a doubt regarding their status as Christian brethren based upon the conduct dealt with by James at the beginning of chapter 4. We'll look at that in a few moments. However, since these Jewish Christians were scattered, there simply is no feasibility to the notion that James is singling out any particular incident, but rather he's addressing general issues of interpersonal conflict among Jewish Christians, which he may have heard about from various sources. James discusses the issue of trials and temptations among believers. By the way, several Greek words are used in the New Testament for this adversity and are variously translated. Now, I've written uh, an article on trial and, and temptation and testing, and it's in the box on the right side of your screen if you're looking at the written notes for today. Or you can look under the topic section of BibleTrack.org and read that article. Uh, that article provides you a complete overview and ties scriptures together from several New Testament passages on this very subject of trial, testing, and temptation. Two significant Greek words occur in verses 2 through 4. The first being parasmas, translated temptations in the King James and trials in the New King James. That's in verse 2. And dokimaon, which is translated trying in the King James Version and testing in the New King James Version in verse 3. Both of them are Greek nouns. A third Greek uh, word is used. It's a noun. It's used in the first chapter in verse 12. That word is dokimas. Uh, translated tried in the King James Version and approved in the New King James Version. If you'd like a proper understanding of the concept of adversity, it's expedient to understand the differentiations and similarities of these words that are used. Now, here's the bottom line on verses 2 through 4. Without adversity, Christians don't spiritually develop. Wow, that's a tough concept right there. But look at verse 4. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The Greek word for patience there is hupomone, which is a compound word. Hupa means under, and mone means remaining. In other words, remaining under control. It's also translated endure in the New Testament. So the concept is summed up in verse 4 as follows. When we endure adversity, we are perfected or matured as believers through that very process. Well, it's a fact. Trial is necessary for Christian growth. Now, that doesn't mean that we flail in the darkness when we undergo trial. Verse 5 provides a guarantee regarding that trial and says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That means that under trial we can know what God's working in our lives through the, that very trial by simply seeking God's wisdom in prayer. Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 4 gives the sequence for maturity in one's Christian life, and its primary component is trial. Learn your lesson from trial and claim verse 12. Here's verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Trial draws us closer to God and makes us a reflection of him. Every believer should have a clear understanding of how to deal with adversity. 
Incidentally, I am convinced that the guarantee of wisdom from verse 5 is not limited to the area of trial. Wisdom from God is the key to answered prayer about anything a believer faces. The first step in prayer should always be to seek the wisdom of God about any matter. James continues with a lesson on praying with faith in verses 6 through 8. When one seeks wisdom from God as the first step of prayer, then he is able to ask in faith, according to verse 6. Notice particularly John's formula for answered prayer in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Here's what he says there. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Well, there it is, clearly written. When we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Well, how's that done? Well, there's your answer in James chapter 1, verse 5, asking God for wisdom. The disappointments of unanswered prayers are explained in verses 6 through 8. They are not prayers of faith because they were not founded on wisdom. A successful prayer life must be based upon the wisdom of verse 5. Unfortunately, most Christians are double-minded. The Greek word there means indecisive when they pray. Why is that? Well, it's because they didn't seek wisdom as the first step to their prayers. Verses 9 through 11 may seem a little out of place here. Keep in mind, these verses are located in the midst of verses about adversity. Relief from adversity was directly addressed in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, followed by an admonition to pray for wisdom regarding that adversity in chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. The theme of adversity directly continues in verse 12, so verses 9 through 11 must be related to this whole theme of adversity. Perhaps the thought here is that the lowly brother, uh, the humble brother, seems to be experiencing more adversity than his not-so-hard-up brother. While tapenos doesn't necessarily speak to material wealth, that's the Greek word used there, the comparison with the rich of verse 10 definitely indicates a comparison between those who have it and those who don't. Additionally, James picks this back up as a theme in chapter 2. It is important to note, however, that James is not simply talking about wealth here, but he's obviously talking about the use of that wealth. He gives an illustration in verses 10 and 11 uh, one from nature to indicate that wealth itself is temporary with this final phrase when he says, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. From that, we deduct that he's describing those who are stingy with their wealth while their Christian brethren are suffering. As we talked about earlier, the reward for those experiencing adversity as seen in verse 12 is eternal compared to the temporal advantages of wealth. Verses 13 through 15 merits some attention here, some special attention. If you read the overview of temptation that I provided in the um, written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, here's what you saw. You saw that Satan is the one who brings trial, also known as testing, also known as temptation, into that believer's life. The believer was capable of passing that test of adversity, according to 1 Corinthians 10.13, but what if the believer does not pass the test of adversity which Satan instigates? What if the believer instead succumbs to temptation? Well, that's sin. Allow me to quote a verse from chapter 4, James 4.17. It says, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. In other words, sin for the believer is rebellion against God, specifically rejection of the leadership of the Holy Spirit's convicting power in the believer's life. 
When a believer sins, God corrects just as a father corrects a son for disobedience. That's clear in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. That process, by the way, is called chastisement. In this case, adversity in the believer's life as a result of sin is orchestrated by God himself. Admittedly, this may seem a little confusing at this point. You ask, so what's the difference between trial, or testing and temptation, and chastisement? Well, perhaps the clearest Bible example of trial is that of Job in the Old Testament. In Job chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, we see that God permitted Satan to put Job to the test. It was a horrific test. Everything that happened to Job was brought on him by Satan. What was Satan's goal? Here it is. Satan was determined to bring Job to a point in his life where he will curse you, being God, to your face. That's a quote from Job. So here's the differentiation between trial or temptation and chastisement. Were Job to have succumbed to that temptation, that would have been sin. But he didn't succumb. However, sometimes believers do fall into Satan's trap and do that which they know is sin. That's when chastisement from God's in order. Now, I've written another article, and it's entitled Trial Versus Chastisement. Take a look at that article. It's on this page of the written notes of BibleTrack.org, or you'll find it in the uh, topic section of BibleTrack.org. We see in James chapter 1, verses 16 through 27, that words hurt. Verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. In relation to material wealth, verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. What is the gift being referenced here? It's the salvation of verse 18. That verse says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. With that in mind, obedient Christians are careful with their testimony before the world. This may be a good time to recall Galatians 5, and 23. Those two verses say, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control— Against such there is no law. Words and actions are in view here in these verses. When believers are led by the Holy Spirit, these are the attributes that are displayed, not a sharp tongue. James addresses the issue of believers being doers of the word. Is it a coincidence that James talks about temptation followed by chastisement, followed by the quality of one's conduct before the world? Well, no coincidence here. 
When a believer is serious about serving God, he will naturally protect his public testimony. In other words, Christ in one's life ought to be seen by others as a visible desire to please God. When believers are committed to our religion, that means devout practice, the Greek word threskia there, then good things flow out from our lives. Both our words in verse 26 and our actions in verse 27 are glorifying to God. You'll notice in these verses that James seems to attribute a negative testimony to uncontrolled anger when he says in verse 20, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This is followed by his admonition that believers should exercise the principles of their faith rather than simply be observers. He compares this to the man who looks in a mirror, but makes no changes with regard to his appearance. However, looking into the Word of God ought to result in a desire for a positive change, a change that will come through the working of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, James encourages his readers to refrain from partiality. Verse 1, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, James resumes a theme he touched on in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. That's the relationship between those who are wealthy within the local assembly and those who aren't. Incidentally, James refers to the assembly with the Greek word that's usually translated synagogue. Being a very early epistle, the assembly of believers probably retained this designation until the term church, being the Greek word ekklesia, which means called out assembly, before that word began to be used. He's obviously talking about an assembly of Jewish believers here. Ah, let's face it. It's bad to esteem one believer over another. To favor the wealthy-looking man over the poorly-dressed man is to superficially judge based upon evil thoughts, according to James in verse 4. Wealth has nothing to do with one standing with Christ. In verse 5, he says that. So he encourages his readers not to show the same disdain for the poor that the rich of the world do. That's in verse 6. After all... It is they who persecute all believers in verse 7. We see that. Then James refers to the last six commandments as the treat others like royalty commandments in verse 8. These last six deal with the person-to-person relationship, while the first four deal with the person-to-God relationship. Christ sets the precedent for dividing the Ten Commandments up into these two categories 
in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. That's where he points out the greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He goes on to identify the second by saying, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments identify the intent of the Old Testament law. So what about the believer who demonstrates a love for God but doesn't demonstrate a love for people? Well, James points out that to keep all the commandments except one is still to be a violator of the law. Spirit-led believers will treat others like royalty. This very early epistle written to Jewish believers draws upon their continued adherence to the law of Moses in these verses. James emphasizes that respect for one's fellow believer, rich or poor, is just as important as exercising restraint in adultery or murder. He then refers to the contrast between law and grace when he declares in verse 12, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Jesus had emphasized this concept in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. That was on the eve of the crucifixion when he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. He serves a warning to those who ignore this exhortation in verse 13. That verse says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. When you serve out judgment without mercy, don't be surprised when you're the recipient of judgment without mercy. Thank the Lord that God is merciful. We see in chapter 2, beginning with verse 14, that people are looking for evidence of salvation, and that evidence they're looking for is works. Verse 14, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. I often hear people say, I don't care what people think about me. I generally conclude that they're just lying when they tell me that. Everybody cares to some degree, even those who want to be known for saying they don't care. These verses actually continue the theme of verses 1 through 13. Since the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, since that fruit will demonstrate attributes in the believer that eliminate the danger of a violation of verses 1 through 13, the violator of verses 1 through 13 must question his motivation. James is pointing out that the natural tendency of salvation is to do good works. That's what the world sees in us. How do we demonstrate our salvation with others? Well, answer is we do it with good works. 
So is it fair for the world to be inspecting our lives for indications of salvation in Jesus Christ? Well, maybe not, but I always told my kids, life's just not fair. These 13 verses are quite troubling to many. Some even use these verses to promote a works-based salvation. Others are troubled by what appears, perhaps, to them to be a contradiction of Paul in Romans chapter 4. As a matter of fact, James and Paul even use a common example. They use that of Abraham. Well, let's take a look at Paul's words found in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Let me read them to you. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, admittedly, that may seem confusing in light of James' statement here in verses 20 through 24. Let's look at those verses again. Verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Of the two epistles, Romans was likely written much later than James. The audience was quite different as well. James was written to the Jewish believers. We see that in James 1.1, the 12 tribes. While Jews in Rome were sparse, James was dealing with the big problem in the early church, which was especially visible in Jerusalem. And that problem was the equal treatment of believers in the church. We see that in Acts 6, Acts 15, and Acts 21. As you'll recall from the book of Acts, there was a very slow transition for those who had been raised as Jews to a life of grace in Christ from a life dictated by the law of Moses. James discusses the godly treatment of others in chapter 2. He makes the point that faith in Christ ought to be represented by a love for all believers. His emphasis is that real faith ought to be demonstrable. When it isn't, well, it ought to be. James is talking about how others view our religion, says so in James 1, 26 and 27. He's emphasizing our visible testimony of works to demonstrate our faith to other people, not as the conditions for saving faith, but demonstration for other people. Paul, on the other hand, is strictly talking about the simplicity of salvation without works. Paul emphasizes the actual condition for obtaining salvation, and that's faith alone, while James is talking about public testimony. So you see, context for both passages is very important here. Speaking of context, let's get specific here. James seems to be addressing those who are among the wealthier in the assembly when he talks about works in this passage. Look at his example in verses 15 and 16. It deals with a brother or sister, um, also known as believer, one who is destitute. The actions of works referenced here are those of sharing one's wealth in such situations. Now, taken in context, it further shows James' intent and makes us realize what works he's talking about here. He's talking about works of generosity. That's what is being addressed in verse 17 when he says, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
These are works of generosity. You can see that. The demons believe that there is one God in verse 19, but their actions aren't positively affected. Therefore, believing the one God concept, well, that alone does not constitute salvation. The further examples of Abraham and Rahab are intended to show that faith fosters a proactive direction in one's life. So, to sum it up, salvation is by grace alone, plus nothing, minus nothing. One isn't saved or kept saved by a works supplement to salvation. After salvation, however, pure and undefiled religion before God will demonstrate one's salvation to others by the way one lives his life. That pure and undefiled religion before God is seen in James 1.27. In chapter 3, the first 12 verses, we have a passage on taming one's tongue, verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires." Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Well, we're still continuing our theme of lifestyle from chapter 2. James begins by saying, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Let's look at a couple of Greek words in this verse. Teachers comes from the Greek word didaskalos, which is translated masters in the King James Version. Here the King James Version uses it in the context of a master teacher. The Greek word for judgment here is krima. That Greek word means judgment, but not necessarily condemnatory judgment. The King James Version translates it as condemnation. James is declaring that teachers of the Word of God have a greater responsibility before God for their words and actions. That sets the tone for the comments to follow. In verse 2, it explains that when you can control your words, your actions will follow. One who controls his words and actions is a perfect the Greek word teleos is used there, which means mature or complete, that he is a perfect man. The lesson of these verses is watch your mouth. Several analogies are used to illustrate animals, fire, ships. Just as a large horse is able to be controlled by a small bridle, so is the tongue. Just as a large ship is able to be controlled by a small rudder, so is the tongue. Just as a large fire, a forest fire, can be started by a small spark, verse 5. So can controversy out of words from the tongue. All of these are to drive the point home that a loose tongue can do a great deal of damage. 
James then addresses the unregenerate nature of the tongue, actually of the loose tongue of the carnal man when he says in verse 8, But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Because of our carnal nature, sometimes the tongue can speak honorably and sometimes dishonorably, we see in verses 9 and 10. Being controlled by the Spirit is in view here when he makes the point in verses 11 and 12 that your tongue indicates what's in your heart. In other words, if you have a sharp, mean tongue, it's probably because you're a sharp, mean person. I don't make the news. I just report it. Again, we should take note of the results of being controlled by the Holy Spirit, as seen in Galatians 5:22 and 23. When we are controlled by the Holy Spirit, make no mistake about it, our tongue is also controlled. And where does this meanness come from? Look at verses 13 through 18 of chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. As these verses point out, meanness doesn't come from God. Godly wise men display a positive Christian testimony. That's in verse 13. We then see in verses 14 through 16 that bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, well, those are not products from God, but are instead earthly, sensual, and demonic. As a matter of fact, verses 17 and 18 sound a lot like Galatians 5, 22 and 23. That's where we find the fruit of the Spirit. When believers are not led by the Holy Spirit, the old Adamic nature begins to dominate. Victorious Christian living is only possible through control of the Holy Spirit in one's life. Now, let's be clear. Contentious behavior toward believers, that does not originate from God. Incidentally, it is the Adamic nature in each of us that gives us the propensity to sin from the day of our birth, as a matter of fact. We have this sin nature because of Adam's fall in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, just notice the passages where Paul makes reference to Adam and the sin nature. In Romans 5.14, he says it like this, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. In 1 Corinthians 15.22, here's what he says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. In verse 45 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And then in 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 and 14, here's what Paul says. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. While James doesn't specifically refer to this tendency as the Adamic nature in verses 14 through 16, the concept is definitely there. It's only through the leadership of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life that he's able to overcome the tendencies of the Adamic nature. In chapter 4 of James, we see that people of God should act like, well, people of God. Verse 1, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. 
You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves on the side of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. James takes off here on worldly acting believers. It's really a continuation of the end of chapter 3 regarding strife compared to godly wisdom. In addition to fights, when we see the word make means strifes or conflicts, James uses a very strong word here to describe these conflicts. The Greek word for war is polemos, which is the military term for war. Keep in mind, his readers are scattered, so there may not be a particular situation about which he's speaking here. However, James is obviously driving home the seriousness of the strife in chapter 3. Now, there's no question James is referring to believers who are acting like lost people in verses 2 through 4. For those who would maintain that verses 2 through 4 describe the unregenerate instead, we'll take a look at verses 5 through 10. James acknowledges the tendencies of the carnal nature when he says in verse 5, Do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Well, James seems to be pulling together some Old Testament concepts into one concise thought regarding man's propensity to sin. However, he declares that this propensity is overcome by grace in verse 6, submitting to God and resisting the devil in verse 7, and by drawing close to God in verse 8. These are the steps an out-of-fellowship-with-God believer should take to get back on the correct footing with God. James actually itemizes some steps to restoration with God in verses 8 through 10. He tells them to cleanse your hands, you sinners. As a matter of fact, cleanse comes from the Greek verb katharizo. It's used in the New Testament in reference to literal or ceremonial cleansing. Then he says, purify your heart, you double-minded. Only James uses the Greek word dipsikos for double-minded. It's here and in James chapter 1, verse 8. It's used to indicate being uncertain about the truth of something. Then he encourages them to lament and mourn and weep. Then to let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And finally, 
Humble yourselves on the side of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, these steps are intended to make these misdirected believers cease their reprehensible conduct, display remorse for such, and turn to God. Now, don't lose sight of the theme here. We're reminded of it again in verse 11. It says, do not speak evil of one another. That's right. It's still their interaction between one another that's being addressed here. They have the law of Moses, which they must have thought they were honoring when they exercised such contentious behavior. In verses 11 and 12, we see that. Finally, in verses 13 through 17, James points out how temporary life really is. If you want to prepare, prepare for eternity and stop placing so much value on temporary things. We see in verse 17 the definition of sin for the believer. Let's take care to understand the distinction here. This verse references the actions taken by believers when it says this, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. This knowledge of knowing good comes from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit offering leadership. When a believer violates this Holy Spirit leadership towards good, well, that constitutes sin. Keep in mind, we're not talking about just blatant, overt sin here. But James is including conduct that may look fine on the outside, but is really not surrendered to the Holy Spirit's leadership. We see details regarding this leadership of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. You may want to consult that passage and my notes on that. In chapter 5, we see a warning to the unethical rich, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. James takes one more swipe at those rich who dwelt among their poor brethren and didn't share. These are strong words, so strong, in fact, that it almost seems that he must be describing lost people here. Actually, they're the same people reproved in each of the preceding four chapters. Their less fortunate brethren were suffering while they were living in luxury, and they were refusing to share. These verses are addressing those who came by their riches at the expense of others through unethical and dishonest means. They stood by and perhaps even participated in the unjust treatment of their less fortunate brethren, who were scattered also. From the wording of verse 6, not only did they not assist their needy brethren, they participated in the conviction and execution of those who were needy. Murder is not necessarily the meaning here, but unjust treatment of the courts resulting in execution may be what is meant. Then we find the admonition in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 5, be patient and get along. Verse 7, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. 
But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Well, now we turn back to those who are suffering. Patience and mutually honoring treatment is encouraged between them. The Lord is coming back, but until then, be diligent in your work and get along with other people. Ill treatment of your brethren reaps one's own condemnation. That word right there is similar to the one before, but here it's katakrino, always negative and always negative judgment. The suffering under adverse condition prophets are cited as examples. Jeremiah was placed in prison and lowered into a cistern, a dungeon just for telling the truth of God. In addition, an example of Job's patience is given as far as being patient under adversity. No question, Job is the poster child for adversity. Look at the chapters on the book of Job and see what I mean. Oh, in verse 12, let your word be such that you don't need to be swearing by anything in order to convince folks to believe you. When you have a reputation for telling the truth, swearing by an oath just isn't necessary. That's a concept addressed by Jesus to the Pharisees also in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Then we have verses on prayer for the sick in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effect of fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Here James deals with praying for the sick by the elders of the church. Some have suggested that the anointing of oil in verse 14 is really just, well, just applying medicine to the injury, or perhaps taking medicine orally. They attempt to do a play on Greek words to make their point. That's a very weak argument of Scripture, by the way. The Greek word alepho is used here as it is every time in the New Testament when oil is used ceremonially to anoint. James is teaching a procedure of anointing the individual who has health issues with oil after they have come to the elders to ask for this procedure. Since the directions seem to be exact here, it seems inappropriate for an elder or elders to do the calling, I mean like a healing line at a religious meeting. The process starts with the ill person doing the calling when he calls for the elders and not vice versa. A confession of sin seems to be an important component to healing here also. Some have attempted to dismiss these verses as belonging to another dispensation. Now, I see no evidence that that's the case in these scriptures. Therefore, when folks ask the elders to gather together, anoint with oil, and pray for their sickness, it appears to be a New Testament mandate for us to do exactly that. James uses Elijah as an example of faith in verses 17 and 18. He's referring to the drought and subsequent rain in which Elijah was instrumental in God's judgment against that wicked king Ahab. That account is found in 1 Kings chapters 17 and 18. And finally, James deals with the issue of what about those people who turn their backs on God in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 5. Verse 19, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, 
let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, don't make the mistake of seeing this as a spiritual death. When a person assists another believer in seeing his deviation from sound Christian practice, he helps him to deliver himself from certain chastisement and possibly even death. The Greek word for turns him back here is epistrepho. That means to turn again. Christians who rebel against God need to be turned back to their serving God status. If you want to read the information box on trial versus chastisement, you'll get a clearer perspective on this concept. These two verses have nothing to do whatsoever with salvation in Christ. They have everything to do with physical chastisement. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton. 